and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. Our scripture reading for this day is taken from the letter to the Hebrews. It's chapter 5 in Hebrews Beginning in verse 5, listen for the word of God to you this day. So also Christ did not glorify himself in becoming a high priest, but was appointed by the one who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent Submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Having been designated by God, a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Together we say thanks be to God. Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. Maybe in the church that you grew up in, that was the story of Jesus. That was the gospel. But Christianity, remember, is big. And Christian theology is big. And the idea that Jesus paid the price for sin to make us right with God is just one of many, many visions about the meaning of Jesus' death. The blood sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus has never felt truly life-giving to me. I've struggled with it, always felt a bit uneasy about it. It's not that sin is not an issue for me or for us. It is. It's not like I think we've got a handle somehow on sin and we don't need some help with it. Sin is in each of us. It's in all of us. But it's never really made sense to me that Jesus' gruesome death on the cross is part of some cosmic transaction that washes sin away. I certainly don't like the picture that substitutionary atonement paints of God. A father demanding that sin be repaid and finding the gruesome torture of his son as an acceptable price. So if you struggle with blood sacrifice, I want you to know there are so many other ways to find meaning in the cross. Jesus goes to the cross as an act of solidarity to be with us whenever and however we suffer. Jesus goes to the cross 
to expose our complicity and sometimes our willing participation in cruelty and dehumanization of our neighbors. Jesus goes to the cross, I think, to expose the futility, the empty soullessness of all evil. On the cross, Jesus shows us what real power looks like. It looks like mercy and compassion. Jesus dies on the cross so that we uh, might not be afraid that death is somehow the end of us. Jesus is raised to new life and shatters our fear that death is the end. Christianity is big, and Christian theology is big, and all of those ways of looking at the cross allow us to claim the cross as a place of our salvation without giving assent to substitutionary atonement. But here's another thing that I've learned along the way of thinking about the theology of the cross. I also believe that even if you adopt an understanding of the cross that is not substitutionary atonement, you still cannot make the blood go away. The blood of Jesus is still there. It's always there. So let's talk about it today in the sanctuary with this blood-red cross. Many scriptures talk about Jesus' death as a blood sacrifice. You can't get around that fact. One of them is this letter that I read part of this morning, this letter to the Hebrews. You shouldn't avoid these texts, even if you don't like them, especially now as we're on the cusp of Holy Week. Read them and wrestle with them and try to appreciate them for what they do say. Hebrews is, like many of the New Testament letters, kind of a mystery. We don't know when it was written. We don't know who wrote it. We don't know where it was written. Scholars argue with each other over whether this is a letter or whether it's an early kind of sermon. 
one thing about the letter is clear, and it's that the letter teaches Christian theology. The letter wants to teach this early Christian community some kind of theology. It offers practical teachings, but those teachings spring out of its theological instruction. One scholar imagines that Hebrews is written to a community that is tired of walking the walk of faith. Imagine that, right? Tired, people tired of the binding and the chafing, the self-sacrificial way of life in community with people who are not like them. And they're ready to give up on the covenant, maybe even ready to offer themselves to a different God. To encourage them, Hebrews says focus on Jesus, focus on the cross, and focus on the blood. The key image of Jesus that we encounter in Hebrews, that we encounter in this fifth chapter as well, is the image of Jesus as our great high priest. Now, I am 100% sure that when I read that passage some of your eyes or your ears or both glazed over and you were like, what, right? I don't blame you, right? Most of us do not live in uh, proximity to priests or to temples where blood sacrifices are happening. But the high priest image certainly would have been familiar to the community of the Hebrews. Every Jew and every Roman was surrounded by dozens of temples, and every temple was a monument to an arrangement, an agreement of sorts between human beings and God. This relationship between human beings and God gets worked out in the temple by the priest. The priest will offer sacrifices. And these sacrifices, which were often the blood of an animal like a a dove or a goat, these sacrifices are a sign that we human beings will obey God. We offer a costly gift that we intend to be faithful. The hope is that God will receive our gift, that God will receive our intention to be faithful, and that God will return the favor to us, that God will bless us. We give a life. We receive a life. It's a covenant promise that is sealed in blood. The writer of the Hebrews does something curious with this image of priesthood and sacrifices. The writer makes the case that Jesus is the priest and Jesus is the offering. Jesus is the sacrificer and the one who is sacrificed. Jesus offers his own blood to seal the covenant promise with God. The writer of the Hebrews says that this is the final sacrifice, the last one ever needed. It is the perfect sacrifice, the perfect place, the perfect priest, and the perfect blood. It is life given and life received.
The world that you and I live in often appears bloodless. Apart from an occasional scraped knee or knuckle, I rarely ever see blood, let alone think about it. Of course, the blood is always there. It's inside me and inside you at this very moment, this dark, thick, liquid coursing through your body, doing what blood does. You remember what blood does? Remember back to middle school biology class? It carries life-giving nutrients to your body and oxygen to every one of your cells. Your blood fights invaders, invading bacteria and viruses. It shuttles your waste out of your body. All that blood moving through you is pumped by a single organ the heart, the center. This is not a bloodless world after all. Blood is everywhere and blood is life. Even when it's out of sight, there is blood being spilled around us every day. Most days I eat at least a little bit of meat. Maybe you do too and of course, very few of us raise our own pigs or chickens or cows for the slaughter to eat them. But that sacrifice still happens every day, far away from many of us. For me and for you, it is the shedding of blood by one for the well-being of another. It is a life given for a life received. Now, we don't treat that sacrifice as a virtuous run, right? Uh, certainly, the cows and the chickens are not signing up to freely offer themselves for us. They're not out there in the fields lining up to be our dinner. The same thing is true with any kind of sacrifice. When that sacrifice is demanded, when it is coerced, when it is exacted by another, by threat or force, when the sacrifice is not free, it is not sacrifice, it's not virtuous, and it certainly is not redemptive. Much of the time when sacrifices are made, the giver of life and the recipients never even see one another. I know some of you who are watching and worshiping this morning have been a patient in a hospital, and you received blood blood that was freely donated by someone else 
in the course of a life-saving surgery on your own body. It is no exaggeration to say that the person that you never met gave part of their life to save yours. Being a parent for 13 years has impressed upon me a bit more deeply the ways that this kind of self-giving, this kind of blood sacrifice is woven into our being. A mother's blood is the source of her child's life in utero. And when children are born, when they come into our lives as living beings, as parents, we pour ourselves out for their well-being, not our blood per se, but truly our life force, the stuff of our being. We pour it out willingly and lovingly for our children. It is our life given and life received. I thought this week of all of the good things in life, all of the things that are truly good, wisdom, forgiveness, love, and faith. All of these things are gifts that are poured into our lives. They're not things that we can get for ourselves. They're things that people put into us. They give to us. Think about the wisdom that comes from your ancestors, from the women and men, your parents, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, who lived through times much harder than this one, who learned the truth about life and death through patient endurance and grit and resilience, and what they learned, they passed along so that you would receive it as a gift to help you. Think about forgiveness. When you have been forgiven, when someone should want revenge on you for the harm that you caused or the damage that you've done, Think about when they release you from that debt. It's a gift, pure and generous and costly. Think about love. Think about the love that you've received. When you've been loved by another person, when you have been given the gift of acceptance and dignity that comes to you, not from yourself, but from another human being, it makes you into a person. You cannot do that only for yourself. And think about faith. This mysterious thing that we call faith, the hope that we keep alive, that God is good, that God is not done with the world yet, that God seeks out and saves those of us who are lost, that God will bind up our wounds and make wrongs right, that God is even now reconciling all people to God's self and to one another, the hope that God is making all things new. Faith is not something that we win or that we earn. Faith is a gift that is given to us. When I look around at the world, the stuff of life, the real stuff of life, comes to us as freely given gifts. Our ancestors, our enemies, our lovers, 
the saints. They pour themselves out and they do it for us. They give their lives for us. These gifts come to us in ways that we can never pay them back. We can only pay them forward. So I read this passage in Hebrews about Jesus making an offering of himself. It says, in the days of his flesh, in the days when he was alive, Jesus offered prayers and supplications, loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. Jesus offers himself. He gives himself to us, to everyone. He gives his touch, his wisdom, his forgiveness, his healing, his prayer and supplication even his loud cries and his tears. He gives everything. Did he give it freely? That's what I want to know. Did he give everything? Even his life? Out of freedom? Out of love? It matters, right? It matters because a sacrifice that is coerced or forced or demanded by someone else is not virtuous. It cannot save and it cannot be the cornerstone of our faith. But perhaps Jesus' last days were not simply forced on him. Perhaps he was not just a pawn moved on some cosmic chessboard by an invisible hand. But he was a person, free, free in those last days, free, free to embody as best as he knew how the self-giving nature of God in his life, and also in his death. I never say that Jesus died for my sins. But I do believe that Jesus died for me, out of love for me. Jesus lived and breathed and blessed and taught, and healed, and died, and rose for me, and for you. In our bloodless world, in a world that values the self, and its preservation, and its promotion above all things. 
it feels helpful to me to remember how often and how much our lives are nourished by others who have given themselves freely out of love for us. We do have a covenant with God. Our covenant with God is not founded on your or my good intentions, on our promises to do right or do well. That covenant is based on the full gift of God's self for yourself. It is a promise sealed in blood. Yes, there is power in the blood. Let the people say, Amen.